0: Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. These are the words of God. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would teach us now how to rejoice the way that Paul rejoiced because Christ was proclaimed. And so preach Christ to us now, for we ask this in his name, and amen. Amen. Why do people preach? Why do people preach? What motivates men, and even women at times, to stand up and say things in the name of God? You could think of some possible motives. They might do it for money, to get rich. That's a common motive that Scripture warns us about. We know people who do that. It might be to get attention to gain a following, to build a platform. They might preach out of a sense of vengeance or retribution. Maybe someone wronged you and preaching is your way of being heard, of getting justice, of making things right. There are many potential motives for preaching, and most of them are bad. But here in our text, we see that the only motive that we should want for ourselves and for our pastors is the motive of love and goodwill. Love and goodwill. Love for God, love for his people. Love for his word, love for the lost. That is what we hope motivates the preachers of Christ. But in our text, uh, Paul also uh, surprises us here, at least uh, he might surprise you, because he tells the Philippians that despite The sinful motives of other preachers, he's rejoicing in that Christ is preached. For Paul, motivations matter, motivations are not unimportant, and having the right motivation is crucial for the one who is preaching. But all that notwithstanding, Christ being preached matters more. And in that, Paul says we should rejoice. And that's really uh, the whole sermon in a nutshell. Motivations matter, they matter a lot, but Christ being preached matters more. So that's, that's the thesis, but uh, in reality, if you think about rejoicing uh, in this way like Paul does, uh, it is quite hard to do. It is hard to rejoice when the people who are preaching want to hurt Paul or want to hurt you. Preaching out of selfish motives, acting sinfully in other areas while preaching Christ, it's hard to rejoice in that. And yet Paul says, I rejoice. So how did he do that? How can we do that? Well, let's walk through these verses together and see what the Lord will show us. Uh, The text should be printed in the bulletin. I remind you of the context of these verses as we're working our way through this book. Uh, This is a continuation of a thought that Paul began uh, back in verse 12. So uh, last week we talked about this, and there he was explaining how his Roman imprisonment is actually turning out for good. He says this in verses uh, 12 to 14. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment has had multiple surprise effects you can imprison the preacher, but the word of God is not bound. And so he says in verse 13 that Christ is manifest in all the palace. So there are uh, Christians. Does anyone know who the Caesar was at the time that Paul is is writing this? Children, children. Nero, Nero, that is correct. Yes, Nero was, he had not gone crazy yet, uh, so he was still a relatively uh, decent Caesar as far as Caesar's can go, uh, but Caesar uh, is uh, Nero is the Caesar at this time, and it says that there are Christians in uh, Nero's household. Uh, Philippians four twenty two says this: All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. So Paul had written uh, the book of Romans about five years or so before Philippians, and now uh, the gospel has gone out in Rome. Christ is made known in the highest halls of human government. And not only there, Paul says, also in all other places. So Rome is being evangelized because of Paul's imprisonment. He goes on in verse 14 to say this. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So you can think if you're the one trying to, the, the Jews are chasing Paul down all across the Mediterranean. Uh, he, could have, uh, uh, he could have been released, but uh, he decides to go, to go to Rome. This is a free, a free trip for him. He wants to preach there. And uh, far from this threat of imprisonment, turning men into cowards, uh, they actually become more courageous. They become more fearless, more bold to preach Christ. You can imagine if all the elders are suddenly locked up, uh, some of you guys are going to have to step up. But if the gospel is being, uh, is, it's spreading because of the imprisonment of pastors, it actually emboldens uh, the young guys and maybe the guys who feel like uh, preaching, that, that's not my thing. It suddenly emboldens you to go do it because no one else can. So this is uh, the effect where they kind of uh, think they chop off one head, but then a bunch of others uh, spring up here. So there's all of these preachers who are going uh, boldly out, but there are some who are doing it out of ill motives. Notice that this is the same group uh, in our text, verses 15 to 18. The same group that is preaching with envy and strife are the same guys who are waxing bold and preaching confidently. If you think about that, that's kind of remarkable. Paul calls these men brethren in the Lord. Someone can at the same time be bold to preach Christ and be doing it out of envy and strife. We'll say a lot more about this in a moment. So that's the immediate context for our passage. Let's walk through it now verse by verse. Verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill. Uh, Notice first that these men are truly preaching Christ. They are not preaching circumcision. They are not preaching false doctrine uh, because if they were, we know that Paul would not be rejoicing. And we know this because we see how he uh, responds in other letters. Um, If they were uh, teaching false doctrine, he would be calling them out. He would be refuting them. And he actually does this later in Philippians chapter 3. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Uh, This is a reference, and we'll get to this in a future sermon, uh, this is a reference to uh, false teachers or Judaizers who are putting confidence in the flesh, confidence in Jewish circumcision. Uh, But that is not the group that Paul is talking about here in our text. These are brethren, These are bold men preaching the true gospel who have been made bold by Paul's imprisonment and who God is using to bring Rome to salvation. Think about that. God is using these men despite their ill motives. And they're doing uh, this good work of preaching, but out of uh, a sinful motive. And so I ask, uh, do we have a category for these kinds of people? Do we have a category for Christian leaders doing good things for sinful reasons. My guess is that most of us would struggle with that. I struggle with that. This was a hard uh, text for me uh, to work through this week. Uh, Most of us would say that if a preacher is preaching out of envy or strife, then he's probably not a Christian and certainly not my brother in the Lord. We are often very quick to treat as unbelievers Christians who sin as if becoming a believer suddenly made all of your motives pure, as if Christians are the people that don't sin anymore. I assure you that is not the case. Why else did we just confess our sins earlier in this service? So this is a real category of people. Uh, Christian pastors are people too. Christian pastors minister out of sinful motives, just like you do things out of sinful motives, and that really shouldn't, surprise us. Why? Well, because of what scripture says about the human heart. What does Jeremiah 17:9 say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Why did God flood the earth? Because he saw that the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Now, that applies to the carnal heart, to your flesh. It does not apply to the new heart that God has given you. But for the born-again Christian, both of those principles are still at war within you. There is still remaining sinful flesh that causes you to do things you know you should not do. And there is also the new man who loves God and wants to do right, that really does want to please God. The Lord. And so, just like you don't know all the reasons and motives for doing what you do, the same is true of preachers. We might think and say we are motivated by love and goodwill. Uh, I've yet to come across a preacher who will say, uh, I am preaching because I am envious of that guy over there. I've yet to meet that guy. Uh, But in reality, we are all complicated. People. This is why people go get psychology degrees. They want to understand themselves. They want to understand other people. And if you're honest, you don't really understand why you do what you do. We don't totally know why we do what we do. And in the end, we must all cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. So this is a real category of preachers. This is not a hypothetical. It wasn't just in the first century. There's probably a lot more of these guys uh, even now today than back then. So this is a real category of preachers doing good things for sinful motives, and it really just makes them kind of like you, kind of like everyone else. Verses 16 and 17 continue to describe these men. He says, The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So here Paul uh, gives us a contrast between these two categories of preachers. First, there are those who preach Christ of contention, and uh, the idea here is out of selfish ambition or self-will. They are jealous of Paul's status as a well-known apostle. This guy gets to write scripture. And they want that honor and dignity for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. And if you think about this motive, this kind of glory seeking, it is a very powerful motivator, especially for us as men. You think in ancient times, dying courageously in battle was the most glorious way to go out at least if you were a pagan ancient. And so men would risk everything on the battlefield. They would do great acts of bravery to get glory and immortality there. This idea is in the background when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Right? What does it mean to act like a man? Well, this idea in there Uh, This idea is built into that. Uh, So in its proper place, uh, glory-seeking is good. Glory-seeking is right, and we should pursue it, but in its proper place. Paul says in Romans 2, 7, that God will reward with eternal life them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. You should seek for glory and honor and immortality and God will give you eternal life if you do. At the same time, Paul will say in the next chapter, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. And this is the distinction here. There's glory that comes from God, and there's glory that is self-serving, what Paul calls vain glory uh, in Philippians 2. Likewise, uh, we read in Proverbs 25:27 of uh, this, and uh, children I want you to listen to this proverb and see if you can get it. This is like a riddle. It says this, It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. It's not good to eat much honey. What does that mean? It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. Think about it. Honey, honey is good. I mean, you, you should like honey. God created it. It's a, a sweet thing. But uh, you shouldn't just drink honey. If anyone has tried that, uh, you probably would vomit it up. Okay? So it's good, but in its right place. Uh, we might translate this to modern uh, teenage speak. Uh, if you're good looking or if you're strong, uh, don't stare at yourself in the mirror flexing. Right? Don't, don't be vain. If you are smart or talented or impressive, especially gifted in some way, don't forget that God is the one who made you like that. What do you have that you did not receive? And so this proverb is saying, seek for glory, but don't be like into yourself. (laughs) Seek for glory, but seek for the glory that comes from God. Don't believe your own hype. It's not good to eat much honey. This is the sin that these preachers of contention were committing. They were treating godliness as a means of gain. They were treating ministry like a competitive sport. And James 3.16 says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. If there's envy and self-seeking in your home, uh, there will be confusion there. If there is envy and self-seeking in the pulpit, in the church, amongst the people of God, there will be division. So it is very dangerous for a pastor to minister out of this kind of vainglorious, envious, self-seeking motive in this sinful form, this kind of vain glory-seeking will devolve into the kind of party spirit and factionalism that was rampant in other churches, especially in the church at Corinth. You remember uh, there at the beginning of Corinthians, Paul says, uh, he's chastising them. They're saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Christ. Well, these preachers, they, they wanted to make that list. They wanted people to say, I am of... That guy. They wanted to displace Paul and have more fans and followers than he did. Uh, You can find this same uh, silliness in the church today. People uh, treat their favorite pastors or theologians, dead or living, uh, kind of like superheroes or trading cards. They pit them against one another, boasting in how their guy is so much better than the other. Uh, And Paul wants the church to have nothing to do with this kind of vain glory uh, boasting. Uh, Returning to our text in verse 17, we see that, thankfully, amongst these bold and courageous preachers, there are some who preach out of sincerity and truth, love and goodwill. So uh, if you are starting to feel a little cynical, as you should, uh, we should not be so cynical that no rightly motivated preachers exist. That is also a category. Some preach desiring to cause Paul distress in prison. But he says, the other do it out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. We see here that there were likely competing narratives going around about why Paul was in prison. You can imagine some saying, Paul is in prison because it's what he deserves. He broke the law. He's causing trouble. His methods are not Christ-like. His rhetoric is not loving. He told those Galatians to emasculate themselves and said that if anyone love not the Lord, let him be anathema. I warned you about that Paul guy. You should distance yourself from him. We know from other places in Scripture that there was a strong anti-Paul faction in the church. Liars, slanderers, Corrupters of his good character, which is why he has to constantly defend himself. So that's one narrative. And it would bring certain Christians secret delight to see Paul in chains. Us, 2,000 years now, we, we, we think Paul's a good guy. Uh, at the time, Paul would have been probably the single most controversial figure in the church and in the world. Okay? Here's a guy who was not part of the original 12. He didn't go around with them. You can see uh, he he alleges that Jesus came to him on the Damascus Road. That's what he says. But wasn't that guy just killing Christians? Wasn't he holding the coats as Stephen was martyred? Why do you think Luke wrote the book of Acts? Because there were competing narratives going around about what is happening in the church. You you can pick this up uh, as you read through the new testament so that's one narrative on the other hand there are preachers who knew the truth they knew that paul was in prison for the defense of the gospel the jews had brought false accusations against him they essentially are calling him a heretic you see this in acts as a roman citizen he was unjustly beaten they had violated his civil rights And so he appeals to Rome to vindicate not just himself, but the truth of the gospel. Paul is fulfilling what Jesus said the apostles would do. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 13, And ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. If you remember the story, Paul could have been set free. But he appealed to Caesar because he saw a preaching opportunity. When else, how else was he going to preach to those in power? I think I would love to preach the gospel to the president or before Congress or the Supreme Court. I would love to preach Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Romans 13 to them, call them to repent and kiss the son. But that opportunity will probably not arise for me unless I become either super famous or a super villain or both, (laughs) which I hope does not happen. (laughs) But that is the controversy around Paul, that he leverages to preach Christ to the most powerful man on earth at the time. This is headline news, and everyone knows about it, and people are being converted as a result. Now, I want to return to this question about how to relate to pastors, preachers, even churches who might be doing ministry for sinful reasons. How should we think about them? We establish that scripture gives us this category, but how do we think about and relate to the people in that category? This uh, This is a hard sermon because I think this is one of the most difficult Things for the church to do right now is to draw the boundary lines of who is in and who is out. Who is a brother and who is not? Who's a false church? Who's a true church? Who's an impure church? Who's a pure church? And you see this, since the time of the Reformation, this is a major controversy, and I suspect we would not all agree even in this room about who's in and who's out. So uh, let me try. <laughs> and uh, my, e- my email inbox is open. You come talk to me if you have questions. Um, this is of crucial importance because the rest of the book is going to talk about church unity. It's going to talk about like-mindedness. It's going to talk about getting along. There's these two women who are uh, helped Paul once upon a time, and they have a fight. I don't know at the potluck or something, and Paul's going to say, "I entreat them uh, to think the same thing, to get along." So uh, we'll have we'll have a sermon eventually on uh, women. Stop fighting. Kind of thing. That, that'll be a whole sermon. So um, for us as a new and young church in this area, we as a church have to figure out how do we relate to other churches who might uh, disagree with us, not like us, for all sorts of reasons, uh, some better than others. So I really cannot overstate the importance of this question and how we answer it. So uh, where do we get guidance? Scripture, of course. Let's read verse 18 and just see how Paul handles this here. He says in verse 18, What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. So here's the distinction that Paul has and that you need to have, uh, that we need to learn how to make. Paul distinguishes between cause and effect cause and effect Paul distinguishes between motive and external action uh, if you're a note person I'm going to give you a visual here if you're not a note person I'll try my best to make this clear imagine you have this kind of two by two grid so there's, there's four boxes and in one box you have good works that are done with good motives Okay, this is one category you have this other box. This is good works done with bad motives. Kind of like these guys here. And then below that, you would have bad works done with good motives. Right? That's like you trying to help someone but actually hurting them. You intend to do good, but you actually do harm. And then you have this other box that is bad works with bad motives. That's just sin. Okay? Good works with good motives. Good works with bad motives. Bad works with bad motives. And bad works with good motives okay I'll, maybe i 'll email this out to you, so try to get try to get this. Th- this is the distinction we need to make in order to rejoice in the good. you must be able to separate cause from effect. Paul rejoices not in any sinful cause; he does not re- rejoice in any sinful motive of these preachers, but only in the salvific effects and objective action. That is preaching Christ. That's it. At least in this text, that's what he is rejoicing in. But he genuinely rejoices in it. Okay, so we can't just uh, say he he feels kind of uh, uh, flat line about it. No, he's actually excited. He's actually rejoicing, which I think is probably where most of us would have the most uh, difficulty doing this. Are we mature enough to make that? Distinction and then praise God. This is not Paul giving his endorsement to these preachers or even approving of their ministry. He is not saying that they shouldn't be disciplined or removed from office for these kinds of sins. These are still sins, and they're actually the kinds of sins that disqualify you from being an elder. Uh, In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it gives the qualifications for elders and and deacons, and the qualifications include motivations of your heart. It says, he must not be covetous. He must not be greedy. He must not be self-willed, etc. Those are built in to the qualifications for eldership, and these men are violating them. So there would be grounds, right, in a church court to, to say, you are doing this out of sinful motives, and here's how we know, X, Y, Z thing. And they could potentially be removed from office. So motives really matter to Paul. And yet sinful motives should not stop us from rejoicing in that Christ is preached and that people are being saved as a result. God is the judge. He is the one who will execute judgment on these men in the end. I want to just close with uh, two points of application for us uh, from this passage. Uh, two points of application for us as a church. Uh, number one, we must be willing to forgive churches and people and pastors who have wronged us. We must be willing to forgive the Christian thing to do. Colossians three twelve to 13 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God. Are you elect? Then put on uh, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. No matter how badly your previous church or pastor or someone in the congregation wronged you, Christ commands us to hold out forgiveness to them, lest any root of bitterness uh, go down into us. This even includes forgiving that most serious sin of teaching you False doctrine, errors that would destroy your soul, of failing to shepherd you. James 3 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Judge, judgment is coming for all of us. Judgment is coming for me. And if you have been sinned against by some teacher or pastor or elder or parent or any superior, God will deal with them. But leave vengeance in his hands. Overcome evil with good, as Paul commands us in Romans 12. So that's the first thing. And uh, this is hard to do. If you think about, my guess is a lot of you come here with stories from other churches where you might have complaints about the way things were done or what someone did or whatever. Uh, Church plants, new churches like this, tend to attract disgruntled people From other churches, and so while there is a place to lament and grieve the things that were done to you or by someone, or maybe you did it, right? We we I don't know. (laughs) When I talk to you, I'll find out, right? Um, So, if any church, we said this last week, if any church is going to stay together, love has to abound between us, which means we have to forgive one another, and we also have to forgive our parents. We have to forgive uh, our previous pastors. We have to forgive people who were sinners, kind of like you and me. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we must be willing to regard as brethren, like Paul did, those who have been baptized and profess Christ, even if they err in many ways, even if they intend evil against us. This is what Paul did. He says in Ephesians four four to five, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is not a baptism of Christ Covenant Church that is distinct from Calvary Chapel down the street. Okay, there's one baptism. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So this means that you must not pronounce someone an unbeliever just because. They did something really unchrist-like. That's what church courts are for. That's what excommunication is. There are ways that God actually adjudicates who is in and who is out. But authority and judgment to do this is not given to private individuals. You as a private Christian, do not have the power to just excommunicate somebody. That is something that belongs to the officers of the church. Yes, there are wolves. Yes, there are false sheep. There are liars and false professions of faith. But God is the one who judges his church, and that power does not belong to any one individual. And so despite what other churches might think of us, we are to treat as brethren in the Lord all who have been baptized in the triune name and who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. This excludes heretical sects like Muslims, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses, but it includes many churches and denominations, even those who are not uh, what we would call reformed or Calvinistic. That is not to say all churches are equally pure in their doctrine and worship. For in the history of the church, there have been times when serious errors have prevailed, even for centuries. But if we would obey God, we must do as he commands in Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are not saved by having perfect theology or perfect motives. We are saved by Christ who forgives us those faults. If we have received this forgiveness, trusting in Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, then we should rejoice whenever that message is preached, even if the messenger were the devil himself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that we uh, are petty. We are a sinful people that need to be cleansed by you. We ask that you would grant that from this pulpit, preachers would proclaim your word with motives of love and goodwill. I ask that as a congregation, you would make us to regard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, that we would uh, not tolerate false teaching while at the same time treating as brethren in the Lord those who might think, very differently than we do. You have been patient with us. When you saved us, we did not have everything figured out, nor do we right now. And so the same patience that you have showed to us help us to be patient with others as well, that your kingdom might be built, that your church might stand firm in the faith, and that we would be a light in this region. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.